All right. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study in this book. And we'll be in chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, if you'd like to follow along. I'd like to read this for us as we begin. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this particular passage of Scripture, uh, it is one that we need to hear, but it is also quite challenging for us. We think about these statements that Jesus made, and they are just so different than what the world around us would say. Jesus Help us to love like you do. Help us to understand what it is you want us to do in response to this word. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by actually uh, talking a little bit about a conference that eight people from our church attended this week. We were at the North Central District Conference. The Evangelical Free Church is divided into 17 districts around the country. And we are the one that's basically the state of Minnesota. Uh, we were there to elect a new district superintendent, which we did. His name is Brian Ferrone, And you can see a picture of him here. Brian is going to be coming from California. He's married, has two children that are 17 and 15. So this will be a, you know, a challenging time for them to move, changing schools and all of that. And uh, you can pray for them. Coming into a new district, he's really excited. He seems to be very gifted and capable, has a lot of energy, and I look forward to meeting him. But it is always a, a challenge, if you will, when you move from one part of the country to another to get to know the people and the culture. And not only that, maybe the climate in this area, uh, coming from California as well. But he is excited about it. And then at the conference, we also heard three messages from our president, Kevin Compliment. And Kevin was elected a couple years ago at the EFCA conference, uh, and um, he was the speaker today talking about the church today and tomorrow. Kevin talked about how our country is rapidly changing, and he looked at some of those things for us. Well, Kevin grew up in Thief River Falls, Minnesota, about 30 miles from where I grew up. We didn't know each other when we were kids. We didn't meet until we were in the Frey Church and worked together on the church planting committee for the North Central District shortly after our church started. 
And that's where I got to know Kevin. And Kevin described that growing up for him in Thiefer Falls was a bit like Mayberry, RFD, if you think of the old Andy Griffith show. And I, I've used that analogy too. In fact, I, I probably have even a little closer claim, I'd say, in that my best friend was the sheriff's son. Uh, we played in the county jail. There was hardly anybody ever in there. We'd go in and shoot hoops, shoot basketball. And, and Bruce's mom was, uh, you know, the sheriff's wife. She cooked the meals for whoever was in there. And it was a pretty low-key situation. And once in a while, we got to ride in the sheriff's car, which was pretty cool for a kid. Um, But it was like that. And now we've gone from Mayberry to modern family. You know, our world has changed. Our world is redefining the traditional understanding and norm of marriage being one man and one woman to something else. Now, we are seeing Christianity being pushed more toward the margin. There was a time when everybody agreed that the Ten Commandments were a good thing and that God's Word was a good thing and this is how we should live and treat one another, but that is changing. There are people in our country today who think that, you know, if we just didn't have religion at all, we'd be a lot better off. Let's just get rid of all of it. We are also a country that's becoming increasingly diverse and that has changed how we look at our world too. If you think about Minnesota, I was looking back on some statistics, and in 1960, only 1% of the people in our state were people of color. And most of that were Native American Indians who were living within the borders of our state. That had grown to 9% by 1999, and today, or let's say 2015 data, 19% of the people in our state are now people of color, and they are coming from literally all over the world, it seems, to the United States and to our state as well. In fact, the demographers tell us that by 2040, about 40% of the people living in the metro area will be people of color coming from different ethnicities around the world. Now, that's a huge mission field. I mean, the world is coming to us, and we have an opportunity to bring them the gospel. And it's not just uh, the metro area that is experiencing this. We heard stories from communities like Wilmer or Austin or Worthington or St. Cloud or even Pelican Rapids where there are now large populations of Hispanics, Somalian, Liberians, Muslim communities that are moving in to these different areas as they find jobs and work. And Kevin's question for us was how will we reach them? How will we share the gospel with a people who have little or no knowledge of the scriptures or of the gospel, a world that is increasingly diverse, a world that is indifferent sometimes to the church and at other times even hostile toward the church? How will we reach them? Well, the passage that we're going to look at today talks about loving our enemies, and I am not suggesting that these different immigrant communities are enemies. They are not. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But I do think that what Jesus tells us in this passage about putting our love into action is exactly what we need to do to bring the gospel to a rapidly changing world. The answer in a sentence is this. We need to love like 
Jesus. We need to love people just like Jesus did, and it is all about the relationships that we build. So what does that look like? Well, Jesus was giving here what we call the Sermon on the Plain, just like the Sermon on the Mount, only it's a different setting. And he is talking to the disciples and to this great crowd of people that have come to him. And he says to them that I want you to love even your enemies. We see that in verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now in the Greek language, there are four words for love. And it's important for us to know which word Jesus was using here. For example, in Greek, the word storge refers to a natural affection that you might have for someone or in a family relationship. And it's not that word that he's using. It's not the word eros. Eros referred to romantic love, the love between a man and a woman. And it's not philia. It's not that friendship love or brotherly love. We know that word from Philadelphia, for example, the city of brotherly love is made up of two Greek words, philia and adelphos, which means brother. It's not that kind of friendship love he's talking about either. It is agape love. And this is the word that is used to describe God's unconditional love for us. It is a deliberate choice that we make to love someone as God loves us in spite of our differences. We may be different in terms of background or interests or ethnicity or other things like that. And we are to love as God loves us. We are to even love those who would be enemies of Christ. Wow. When we go through this passage, we see then what that begins to look like. That kind of love is not possible apart from God's presence in our life. I mean, our natural inclination is to love those who are like us and to associate with those who are similar. It takes grace. It takes work to build bridges with people from different ethnic groups or to build bridges with those who are hostile to the gospel. Our natural inclination, if someone hurts us, is to respond either in kind and strike back or to just avoid all contact with them and not build any kind of relationship at all. If someone calls you a name, it is tempting to reply back and call them a name, but that's not what God is asking us to do. As Christians, we are called to love like Jesus. That means loving your enemies doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, and praying for those who mistreat you. Jesus even gives us some radical examples here in verses 29 and 30. He says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. In other words, if somebody takes your outer coat, give him your shirt as well. He talks about, you know, again, if someone, um, or excuse me, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Wow, what is he getting at here? Well, Jesus is not saying that we should give up all personal defense or the right to private property, but 
The Bible does tell us that that is the role of government to ensure these rights, to protect its people so that we can live peacefully, to protect that right of private property. Leon Morris made the comment that if Christians took this absolutely literally, there would be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves who had everything. I mean, it is not that we are to do this in every situation, but there are times when we need to make that choice. What Jesus is calling for here is a love that is not vengeful. It doesn't take justice into our own hands, but a love that is generous and kind. In other words, it is a love that will overlook an insult. You know, we use that expression, you know, um, like to be slapped in the face. We use that when somebody does something. We go, well, that was kind of a slap in the face. Well, there are times when Jesus is saying that we should overlook that. That we would overlook an insult and be understanding of what has happened. He also tells us that there are times when someone may ask something of us and we understand that they are in need And we would give to them freely, not expecting anything in return. He's not saying that if someone, you know, holds you up and wants to take stuff, that you're just to give them everything that you have. It is not taking away from this right of personal defense or the right to private property. But it is calling for a response among Christians that will overcome evil with good. A love so radical that it would overlook an insult and that it would give to those who are in need. Let me give you an example of that. Some of you probably saw the movie 42 when it came out about Jackie Robinson. Well, prior to that, in 1950, there was actually a movie called The Jackie Robinson Story where Jackie Robinson played himself. He was the first black athlete in the modern era to play professional baseball. And he broke that color barrier, but it was not easy at all. He had to show patience, courage, and self-control in the face of relentless adversity. In both of those movies, there's a scene where um, Branch Rickey, who is the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, calls in Jackie Robinson. And he tells him that he wants him to try out for the team. I'd like you to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. You are that good. But here's what I want to ask you. And he said, what do you think, Jackie? Do you got the guts enough to play the game no matter what happens? Because they'll shout insults at you. And they'll come into your spikes first. And they'll throw at your head. And Robinson responded, they've been thrown at my head for a long time, Mr. Ricky. And Ricky fabricates a scenario. He says, suppose I'm a player on the eve of an, an important game. And suppose I collide with you at second base. And when I get up, I say, you dirty black so-and-so, what do you do? And Robinson said, Mr. Ricky, do you want a ball player who's afraid to fight back? And Ricky answered emphatically, I want a ball player with enough guts not to fight back. You've got to do the job with base hits, stolen bases, and fielding ground balls, Jackie. Nothing else will win. 
Now say I'm playing you in the World Series and I'm hot-headed and I want to win the game. So I go into your spikes first. You jab the ball in my ribs and the umpire says out. But all I can see is your black face and that black face is right over me. So I haul off and punch you right in the cheek. What do you do? Robinson thought for a moment and then he said, Mr. Ricky, I've got two cheeks. And Ricky is very happy with his answer. He discusses the contract with Robinson, and as Robinson is about to leave, Ricky tells him, remember one thing. No matter what happens on the ball field, you can't fight back. That's going to be the hard part. Like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? And if you saw that movie, you know that Robinson does turn the other cheek and became a model of courage and humility. But it was not easy. It's hard to even watch that movie and to think of how times have changed, but how difficult it was. And the abuse that he took and that his family took and the insults from players and fans alike. It was a very difficult thing. And Jesus is calling us to be that kind of individual who will love even our enemies. Jesus, in this passage, calls us to have that same kind of attitude that would overlook an insult or a hurt that is given toward us. So who are our enemies? Well, in context, what he is saying here is that it is those who hate you, those who exclude you, those who insult you, those who reject you because of your faith in Jesus. And that can happen today at school. It can happen in the workplace. It can happen in the neighborhood and in the community. I mean, if you think about what is going on in our world and how it is changing, I I think of even um, this past week, there was a story about Mike Pence, our current vice president. And in 2003, Mike Pence adopted what has been called the Billy Graham rule. And that was that he would never have a meal alone with another woman without his wife being present. It was just something he wanted to do to guard his heart from any kind of innuendo or slander that might come his way. And today, that is being attacked. I mean, they're saying that, you know, you can't do that. In fact, I'm not even sure that that's legal to do. And so there were immigration, not immigration, there were lawyers who were writing about the workplace saying, you know, that uh, you have to treat men and women the same. So if you'd have a meal with a man for lunch, then you have to do that with a woman for lunch and all of this. And one person made the comment on these things that were going back and forth and said, so now we're having a scandal out of someone who is trying to avoid a scandal. You know, it's just how things get twisted and turned around. But there are times when people may choose to act in a way that they view as very Christ-like that is not being welcomed in our world. What about when you post a comment on social media that is not politically correct? What happens? I mean, if you put something out there that others can see, you will probably be attacked. You'll probably get a lot of comments, a lot of pushback. And sometimes people have done that. I mean, it can be quite heated. People will say things in a post or an email that they will not say in person. And I think we need to be careful. How do we respond to that? That we don't respond in kind. 
Tim Allen, the comedian, recently shared how hard it is to be a conservative in Hollywood and still find work. I mean, the only reason he has had a television series is because he's got a good reputation. He has done this before. But there is enormous pressure on him to conform to what Hollywood views as politically correct. And if you are outside of that norm, you may lose your job. Sometimes students in school or the university will feel pressured not to say what they believe because they feel like if they do that, their teacher or professor may give them a lower grade. I was talking with a pastor this week at our conference, too, about Princeton's decision to withdraw this award from Tim Keller that they were going to give him. And this pastor said, you know, I was personally offended by that. Because if that is the way they feel about him, then that's how they feel about me. So how do we respond when we feel attacked? How do we respond when we feel insulted or put down because of our faith in Christ? Do we respond with insult for insult? Or do we give a blessing instead? I love these words from 1 Peter 3. Peter said, don't repay evil with evil. Or insult with insult. He's getting this right from Jesus. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That last verse, that's why we do this. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, on those who choose to live this way. And his ears are attentive and hear their prayers. But God is opposed to those who do evil. We are to love like Jesus. And secondly, he calls us to do good. To let our love show in good deeds. In verse 31, he said, Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's the golden rule. It's that rule that was once commonly understood by everybody in our culture that this was a good thing to do. But now even in that area, there's pushback. And there's people who think that this is not a good thing to do. There's a book that was written that's being talked about called Against Empathy. And it is criticizing this idea that being empathetic toward others, well, that's really a bad thing that creates bad policy decisions. In fact, they would argue that it's not even possible to love others as you love yourself. That what God is asking here is just simply too high. It's out of our reach. It's not attainable. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, I want you to do this. And it doesn't just apply to our friends It even applies to our enemies. It's not just doing good to those who you feel like will repay you. I mean, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. No, we are to go beyond that. And let me give you an example. Several weeks ago at our apologetics conference, Michael Furchert spoke. And some of you who were there, you heard this story, those of you that were there. 
But many of you weren't, and I want to share with you something of his testimony that is an illustration of this. Michael grew up in East Germany behind the Berlin Wall. And he shared what that was like for his family and his parents and his grandparents who lost jobs and opportunities because they would not deny Jesus. Communist government would come in and say that if you want to keep this job, all you have to do is deny Jesus and you can continue. Or they'd offer a promotion. You know, you seem to be very skilled at this area. We'll give you this promotion. But you have to deny Jesus and serve the Communist Party fully. And when they would not do that, they experienced loss in many different areas. And they didn't. They chose to put Christ first in their life. And then came the day when the Berlin Wall came down and the tables were turned. And Michael shared how it was the prayers of God's people. It was those gatherings in the churches where people came to pray and ask God to do what only he could do. They were powerless. They were helpless to change their circumstances. So they called out in prayer. They had these prayer vigils and they would walk through the streets praying in these peaceful protests. And the wall came down. Well, after the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, there was no person in all of East Germany who was more despised than the former communist dictator, Eric Honecker. He had been stripped of all his offices. Even the Communist Party rejected him. He was kicked out of his villa. The new government refused him and his wife new housing. The Honeckers were homeless and destitute. Where would they go? Who would take them in? will enter Pastor Huey Homer. He was the director of a Christian help center north of Berlin that helped homeless people. And he was made of the Honecker's Straits. He was made aware of that. And Pastor Homer felt it would be wrong to give them a room in this shelter that was meant for even needier people. So what did he and his wife do? They took them into their own home. Now, Eric Honecker's wife, Margot, had ruled the East German education system for 26 years. And eight of Pastor Homer's 10 children had been turned down for higher education due to Mrs. Honecker's policies, which discriminated against Christians. And now the Homers were caring for their personal enemy, the most hated man in Germany. It was so unnatural, so unconventional, so supernaturally sublime, so Christ-like. By the grace of God, the Homers loved their enemies. They did them good. They blessed them. They prayed for them. Can you imagine that? Around their table, sitting there with their children. And here is Eric Honecker and his wife, knowing that they had been the ones who had said, No, you cannot go to higher education. Because you are Christians. They turned the other cheek. They gave their enemies their coat, their own home. They did to the Honickers what they would have wished the Honickers would do for them. They loved like Jesus. That's powerful. What would that look like for you and me in the relationships that we have? To build that bridge with those who are different from us? To build a bridge with those who may be hostile to the gospel? To build a bridge with those who have even put you down because of your beliefs? 
How could you show the love of Christ to a neighbor, a coworker, or a classmate? The third thing Jesus calls us to here is to be merciful. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. God is rich in mercy. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, the scripture says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Another word for mercy is pity or compassion. God took pity on us in our lost condition. God took pity on us as we were living in our sins in rebellion against him. And God's mercy just didn't stay as an emotion. It moved him to action. It moved him to send his son to be our savior. In Romans 5, 8, the scripture says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And two verses later in Romans five ten, it will say that we were God's enemies. And he did this. We were living in rebellion. We had no interest in God. We were shaking our fist at him. We were happy to go our own way. We're living in our fallen condition. And God, in his mercy, brought the gospel to us. Loving like Jesus will move us to action. Last week, I told you about Princeton University's decision to withdraw this award from Tim Keller Today, I want to tell you another story about Pastor Tim Keller that comes from someone who did an internship. A pastor who did an internship under Tim Keller, his name is Scott Saltz. And he said that there are many things that he learned from Keller, but one of the things that he learned most was how he modeled the gospel. He said, Tim Keller is the best example I've ever seen of someone who consistently covers people and their sin with the gospel. He said, never once did I see Tim tearing down another person to their face or on the internet or through gossip. Instead, he seemed to assume the good in people. He talked about how being forgiven and affirmed by Jesus frees us for this, for catching people doing good instead of looking for things to criticize or be offended by. And even when someone had done wrong or been in error or talked about him, he would respond with humble restraint and self-reflection instead of venting negativity and criticism. As the grace of God does, he covered people's flaws and sins. Sometimes he covered my flaws and sins. And he did this because that's what grace does. It reminds us that in Jesus, we are shielded and protected from the worst things about ourselves. And because Jesus shields us like this, we should of all people be zealous to restore reputations versus destroying reputations. To protect a good name versus calling someone a name. To shut down gossip versus feeding gossip. To restore broken relationships versus begrudging broken people. I like that. I want to live like that. I want to look for the best in people. I want to cover people's actions with grace and mercy because I need that too. We are all sinners who stand in need of the grace of God. And so Jesus says, be like your father in heaven. He is merciful 
kind, and forgiving. And if you will live this way, then your reward will be great. And you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. And I can't tell you what that reward will be. But I can tell you this, that if Jesus says it will be great, you can trust him. And it's going to be pretty good. Just to be with Jesus, just to see him in his glory will be amazing. And there would be no greater honor than to hear him say, well done, well done. The Bible tells us no eye has seen, no ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But he has revealed it to us by his spirit. So how will we bring the gospel to a rapidly changing world? We need to love like Jesus. That includes loving our enemies, loving those who hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject you. It includes loving those who are different from you and getting to know them. It means not returning insults for insults, but giving a blessing instead. It means that we will pray and ask God to change our heart as we do. We will also follow the golden rule and do what is good. We will treat others the way we would like to be treated. And that means speaking the truth in love. It's not going behind their back, you know, at work or at school. It's not having these conversations that put people down or insulting them. It's not blasting somebody on social media and feeling good about it because you're able to vent. No, it's responding with kindness. And it is showing love by your good deeds. And thirdly, we are to be merciful again as our Father in heaven is merciful. You are a child of the King. Represent Him well. Remember that your reputation affects how others will think about Him. And so walk worthy of the gospel. Live in a way that will point people to Jesus. Be kind, be generous and forgiving, just as God has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, we are challenged by the example of Jesus and we are humbled by our own sin.